my dear brethren and sisters and young people. We have, at the beginning of our study tonight, the picture of David with 600 of his men involved in this warfare against the Amalekites that they might restore that which the Amalekites had stolen from them. We've already observed that in doing what they did do, they did so under the guiding hand of providence. We remember that instead of David simply saying, well, let's give chase and see what we can do and see if we can find them, he sent for the priest, he sent for the ephod, he inquired of Yahweh and Yahweh answered him and said, go and pursue after them and you will recover everything. And so it was under the guiding hand of providence that they went forth. But we already were able to see that David set such a cracking pace in the pursuit of these Amalekites that his men, who were already worn out from the very long journey back from Aethek in the north, they got as far as a brook, which was really, in all probability at that time, a raging torrent. And 200 of the men were so weak in body that they were unable to pursue across this raging torrent. So David left them there, together with as many of the goods and chattels that they had as were possible, to lighten the load of the pursuers, and left 200 men there at the brook, that they might guard the, uh, the goods while the other 400 went on with David in pursuit. We know what happened as a result of that as we saw in our last class. They came upon the Amalekites uh, in a way that could only be providential and so in the reading that we've had tonight and in these closing words of the 30th chapter we find David together with his 400 men returning victorious under the loving and guiding hand of providence with all the things that they had lost, including all their people, their wives, their children, their servants and so forth. But also in addition to that, they had all the spoil that they had taken from the Amalekites. But we saw that when they began to return, and in verse 21, David came to the 200 men that were too faint, that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook. And they went forth to meet David. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. David had no ill feeling against these people at all, these 200 men, because he appreciated the circumstances that had caused them to, uh, at this particular stage, have to cease in their pursuit of the enemy. David understood their weakness, in that it was merely a weakness of the flesh. It was not a weakness of faith, nor was it a weakness of desire to go with David. And so... Despite the remarkable activity of these 600 men in concert together, even though 200 of them were left behind at the brook, we need to remember that in actual fact, all 600 of these men had been engaged in the one enterprise. They had all started off on this enterprise with one mind, one goal, one objective, under the guiding hand of providence. So they were all together in this. But as we saw from uh, verse 22, verse 23, that uh, there were those among David's 400 men who had recaptured all the uh, booty and brought all these spoils with them, that some of these men, not all of them, they are described here as men of Belial. And uh, you might recall that we looked at that at our last class, the wicked men of Belial. The word Belial is a word which signifies someone without profit or worthless. Now they had been men of faith. They had gone forth against this uh, enemy, the Amalekites with David, as men of faith. 
But then when it came to the materialistic things that they had taken possession of and that they had won in their battle against the Amalekites, the ugliness of the flesh began to assert itself. And they said, we're not going to share with these 200 who didn't go with us. They didn't go and fight. They didn't put their lives on the line, forgetting, of course, completely that they were under the guiding hand of providence and therefore Yahweh had cared for all of them. They had not lost a single man. And yet they say, because these 200 didn't come with us, we're not going to share with them. And they had completely lost sight of the fact that virtually they were one body and that all 600 of them had been engaged in the same enterprise with one aim and one objective. So therefore, really, they had all been united as one body. And they remained in that way until the troublemakers came selfishly to the fore. The men who were thinking only of themselves. The men who previously had been prepared under David's guiding exhortation to put their trust and their confidence in Yahweh, they now saw the materialistic things that were to be gained and they weren't prepared to share them. They were thinking only of themselves. And how very easy it is for all of us for the flesh to rise up at any given opportunity when we may feel that we are on the right track, that we are going well in the direction in which we may be pursuing some objective in the truth, only to find that we are suddenly confronted by some temptation and then suddenly there is the flesh rearing itself up. So we must understand that those who had stayed behind at the brook had fulfilled a function. It's not as though they had stayed there and, uh, and enjoyed uh, plenty of sleep and relaxation and a jolly good time while the others were away fighting the warfare. They had in their own way fulfilled a function. And they had in effect made the, the work of the warriors, the 400 that had gone forth, they'd made their work easier by minding so much of the gear. So you see, what we're faced with is this. Where there is loyalty of service... No matter him, however lowly a form it might be, David was prepared to recognise that. And so will the Lord Jesus Christ. David was prepared to recognise faithfulness, to recognise loyalty, no matter how lowly a position it might have been in relation to the 400 who had gone forth and fought the battle and slain the enemy and seized the goods and brought it all back. The others had been faithful as well. They had not been quite as active. They had not been quite as prominent, we might say, in ecclesial life. But they had remained faithful and they had gone forth to meet David upon his return in that spirit of faithfulness. Now David recognised that and was prepared to reward it. And so will the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the lesson that David was trying to teach his men here was precisely the same lesson that Paul set before the Corinthian Ecclesia so many centuries later. When in the first of Corinthians, at chapter 12, and in verse 25, he said that the members should have the same care one for another. They're very beautiful words from the first of Corinthians, chapter 12, and verse 25. Although he points out that there are many parts to the body, many functions within the body, Yet if all are of one mind, if all are of one spirit, 
If all have one objective and one ambition so far as the truth is concerned, and that is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in faithfulness until he returns without wavering or departing from the way of the truth, then no matter whether they are, are part of the arm or part of the head, part of the eye, part of the foot, whatever they are, they're all part of the body of Christ. And Christ will recognise that. And he will reward faithfulness. The members, says Paul, should have the same care one for another. And those men of Belial, we don't know how many there were, numbered among the 400, they were not thinking like that. But David was thinking exactly in harmony with the spirit of Paul, as we have it in that verse in Corinthians. Isn't that rather remarkable? To think of men of faith, no matter what age or generation in which they might live, they tend very much to think along very similar lines. That's a wonderful thing, because the truth doesn't change. The spirit of the truth doesn't change. The disposition required by the truth doesn't change. And so when David saw the urgency of this matter, and in verse 24, he says, For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. That was his verdict. And it was wise, and it was genuine. And it was a reward for faithfulness. And so in verse 25, notice that he says there, And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. You see, David summed up that situation and saw the way in which there had developed through the uprising of the ideals of the flesh a divisive spirit within his body of 600 men who had previously been united. And David saw that there was every likelihood that the flesh being what it is, a similar situation could arise again. So what did he do? He made it a statute and an ordinance. He recognised the wisdom of acting properly, in fact, in acting as their Messiah would do, as David knew very well, having written so much concerning him. He recognised the wisdom of this action. And recognising the danger of possible uh, similar divisions happening again among men who really should be of a united mind, of something arising out of very similar circumstances, David made it a law henceforth to be observed by all the kings of Israel who should follow after him, that they should observe the same wise judgment as this, if such an occasion ever arose again. You see, David wasn't simply satisfied to settle a matter and say, well, look, this is how we're going to handle this, and you'll all agree to this, because that's my duty. And it's based upon the spirit of the truth. And then forgetting about it, he thought of the future. And so must we all, in the decisions that we make in ecclesial life, as a body. We have to consider not only the needs of the moment, the needs that are pressing, but we have also to consider that until the Lord does return, we are to occupy until he comes. Or, as the words more literally mean, trade or do business, says the Lord, until I come. Which means, of course, the business of the truth. So therefore, when faced with problems and difficulties in ecclesial life, when faced with the need uh, to face up to issues and to make decisions about them, we need to think not only of the present, of the moment, but we need to think of the future. We need to guard the future. We need to remember our children. 
We need to remember our young people growing up within this ecclesia and to remember our obligation to those people, to our children, our grandchildren, our young people and so forth and to try and see and discern that we make decisions that become ecclesial policies which is really what David is doing here in verse 25. He is laying down an ecclesial policy in regard to this matter. You know, sometimes we hear brethren say that all we need to worry about in ecclesial life is the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith. That's the basis of our fellowship. That's true enough. No one's going to argue with that. But you see, in addition to the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith that was compiled a hundred years ago, there are matters of concern that affect us in daily life in the times in which we are living. When I was young, there were problems and there were things that faced the ecclesial world and certain decisions had to be made by ecclesias that were determined to pursue sound lines. And so therefore, ecclesial policy becomes very important. So that here in verse 25, it was not simply a question of a basis of fellowship, but it was also a question of wise ecclesial policy. And of course, in that regard, David typifies the all-wise king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will shortly come to reign over all the nations. And we know that he will establish the standards of his fairness, his justice, his sound judgment, not only amongst his household, amongst those who are his saints and will be rewarded according, as he sees fit, but also among the nations of the world as well. You see, at this point it's probably wise if we see in the book of Revelation, just holding a hand in, the, in there, if we turn the Apocalypse just for a moment to Revelation chapter 3, we'll see that this is exactly what the, what the Son of God is going to do. In Revelation 3 and at verse 21, we look at two passages here. First of all we look at chapter 3 and verse 21, then we'll go back to chapter 2 and verse 7. And we'll see that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to pursue exactly the same policy as we find David doing here in chapter 30 and verse 25. So, in chapter 3 of Revelation, and at verse 21, the Lord says, To him that overcometh. Now, you know, there's something very important about that. We read these verses so often, and they come up in our exhortations and so forth, but when we look at that in verse 21, we need to look at the fact that the Lord is speaking in the singular here. He does not say, to them that overcome. And we might wonder why that is so. Well, the answer is very simple. That salvation is an individual matter. We can all help each other, we can all encourage each other, we can all do what we can for each other, but in the ultimate, it comes down to an individual matter. And although in many respects we will be answerable to the Lord Jesus Christ as an ecclesia, we will be primarily answerable to him as individuals. And we will appear before him at the judgment seat as individuals. And the Lord is emphasising that to him, to every single individual. And you see, that's what David was doing. There were 200 men there that had not gone forth to the battle, but they were going to share in the prize. So David would have gone to each one of them and said, there's your share, there's your share, there's yours, there's yours, there's yours. That's what he did. What does the Lord say here? To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my father in his throne. 
In other words, all will be rewarded. All will be rewarded equally when it comes to the great reward, the basic fundamental reward, which is that of divine nature. So from the lowliest brother or sister to inherit the kingdom, to the most well-known, to the most prominent, to the most outstanding, in addition to the Noahs, the Abraham, Isaacs and Jacobs, the Davids, the Moses, the Pauls, right to the lowliest brother or sister as they may consider themselves to be, the reward will be shared. And the reward will be equally shared in that all will have divine nature. Now back in chapter 2 and at verse 7, remember the Lord says this, But he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the Ecclesians. To him that overcometh, again singular, will I give to each of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Everyone will share in the reward. That's what he's saying. Everyone will share. And that's something to encourage all of us, isn't it? And to take great heart from that. We all feel very much aware of our own unworthiness, that we are unworthy of the kingdom, that we are unworthy of the Lord that we were desired to serve, that we're unworthy of the truth, because we're aware not only of our failings and our weaknesses, but we're very much aware of the nature that produces those things. And the way in which Paul anguished in that wonderful seventh chapter of Romans, a wretched man that I am. And yet for all of that we must be aware of those things, but let us also be aware of the joy that is before us, if we are found to be pleasing to the Son of God. And so in verse 26 of the chapter, it becomes very interesting when it says that when David came to Ziklag, now they've returned to the city where they had come from earlier on, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of Yahweh. Now that verse is really telling us a great deal Quite a remarkable verse. You see, David had been given this spoil. Remember we saw in our last class how they said, this is yours David, this is the spoil. He had been given by his grateful men a very large quantity of spoil that they had taken from the Amalekites. But David himself was not a man to place much confidence in the riches of this world. In actual fact, he does very much what Abraham did in Genesis 14. Do you remember how we were able, at our last class, to compare the remarkable similarity between what was done by Abraham in similar circumstances, what was done by Gideon, and now what is done here by David? Certainly, David had in mind Gideon and the battle that Gideon fought. There's going to be very little doubt about that, but Abraham comes into it as well. And remember how Abraham said, look, I don't want to keep anything for myself. Give the young men that which they need and the rest is for Melchizedek and so forth. And, and here we find that David, who was not a man to place a lot of confidence in the riches of this world, was quite willing to share his spoils with the elders of Judah whom he counted among his friends. Now you know, there's two things that should be noted here. It doesn't mention any of the other tribes. It mentions David's own tribe. It's almost as though David had an inkling, perhaps he had even more clearer information than an inkling, 
that he would somehow or other become head of the tribe of Judah before uniting all the tribes in one kingdom. It certainly seems to be a little bit that way. But in any event, the important feature that emerges from these words in verse 26 is that David sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends. Now do you realise that this is the first time in all of David's problems and trials and tribulations that we are being told that throughout all that period of his life he had had friends among the elders and therefore the influential men within his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. We're not told that until now. But there were men there of influence men who were numbered among the elders of the tribe, who, probably in many respects, somewhat fearful to speak out uh, openly and blatantly or to do anything to cause any civil war within the nation, not speaking out against Saul, but nevertheless showing an element of loyalty to David, which, of which David was aware. That's very interesting, isn't it? So all this spoil. David would have transported from Ziklag, which of course is in the very heart of Philistine territory, to many parts of Judah. He sent it all forth. And of course this gesture toward the men of influence, whom he considers to be his friends, is really very, very illuminating. You see, it's quite evident now that David is aware of Saul's position. He knows that that battle of which we have read the first opening verses in chapter 31, the showdown between the army of Saul and the Philistines was probably at this stage only hours away. The battle may even have been underway at the time of which we are speaking of David now. And David would have been well aware as even that witch of Endor had had the, uh, the, uh, the perception to see that Saul and his army would be no match for those Philistines and that Saul and the army of Israel would be defeated and there's very little doubt that David also was aware of that that this major showdown between Saul and the Philistines was going to happen, it was beyond dispute and Saul could not win and remember what David's prophecy had been concerning uh, Saul uh, back in chapter 26 and at verse 10 when the men that were with him particularly Abishai wanted they had an opportunity to destroy Saul at that particular time and in verse 10 of chapter 26 David had answered them and said as Yahweh liveth Yahweh shall smite him or his day shall come to die or he shall descend into battle and perish and as we pointed out at the time all three of those things would have come to pass. And David is now well aware that the time is near when that is going to happen. So you see, David has to consider the future of the nation. And he knows that the first thing he must do is to solidify the tribe of Judah who will accept him. They will eventually accept him. So he sends forth these spoils to the men, the elders of Judah who are his friends, and he says to them, Behold a present. Which doesn't sound very important, does it? But it's really very important. Because the word berakah 
is from the word barak, which means a blessing. It's almost as though David is implying or saying to these elders of Judah that they were to receive these gifts as a blessing from Yahweh and not merely from David. Remember what David has said here, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of Yahweh. He does not say of my enemies, although they were his enemies, certainly, and they'd taken his, his family and all those of the men who were associated with him. They were David's enemies. But you see, David always tried to get his priorities right. And first and foremost, they were the enemies of Yahweh, far more than they were the enemies of David. And that's what David recognised. And that's what spurred him on. He was not simply fighting his own enemies, he was fighting the enemies of Yahweh. So it's as though he is saying, here is these gifts that I'm presenting to you. Regard them as presents. Regard them as blessings from Yahweh. And so here is David once again as a type of Christ. And all who remained faithful to him were rewarded. Many of them had been in a sense silent friends in that they had not, uh, they had uh, refrained from taking action that would have involved the country in civil war. Just imagine if during the period of David's exile and his pursuit at the hands of Saul, just imagine if all the elders of the tribe of, the tribe of Judah particularly those who were so influential that they were known as David's friends, if they had funded Saul and said, we're going to rise up and take up arms against you. It would have divided the whole nation, the bloodshed would have been immeasurable, and the, the, the fruits of it would have been utterly disastrous. Civil war within the nation of Israel. Those men, we might think at first glance, well, why didn't they stand up? Why didn't they take up arms? Why didn't they start war in the nation? David would not permit it. Remember, as far as Saul was concerned, David said he is Yahweh's anointed. You're not going to fight him. You're not going to kill him. Yahweh will deal with him in his own way, in his own time. It's not for us to do it. So these men were friends of David, and yet in many ways their hands were tied. Now think of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think of the fact that we today hope that we are numbered among his friends that he looks down upon us as his friends. And yet in actual fact, this is a period when the Lord Jesus Christ is virtually eclipsed all over the world. On the, on the, on the, on the lips of most people, his name is blasphemed daily. You even hear it on the radio now. People taking the name of Jesus Christ in vain. Where is the respect? Where is the reverence? Where is the acknowledgement? of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah of Israel, as the one who will come virtually to save the world, even though with great judgments. Where is the acknowledgement of him, the reverence or the, the care for him in the world today? This is a time in history when the Lord Jesus Christ and his name and his purpose is in eclipse throughout the, the world. These are the dark days of Gentile dominion, when the mind of the flesh predominates everywhere in the news media, in the entertainment industry, in the business world, wherever you look, it is the mind of the flesh that is everywhere and that is manifested everywhere. It's not the spirit of Christ. So where do we stand? Well really we stand a lot like those elders within the tribe of Judah. For the time being our hands are tied. 
We can't do anything as far as actively opposing the things in the world about us that make us so angry. When we hear Yahweh blasphemed, when we hear his word uh, repudiated, when we hear the name of our Lord and King treated with blasphemy and contempt, what can we do about that? Except remain loyal, remain faithful, stand firm for what we know is right, and remain loyal to our Lord and our King. That's all we can do at the moment. But when he returns, as David returned here from the battle, David set out the rewards and the Lord Jesus Christ will do exactly the same. David was acknowledging his friends and the Lord will do the same. He will joyfully and gladly share the spoils which he will then receive, the spoils of battle. And he will share those things with all who have remained faithful to him even during a time when the things of the truth have been largely in eclipse so far as the world is concerned, as long as they remain faithful to him. And so David's friends had in many respects shared his sufferings. Can you imagine how David's friends among the elders of Israel of the tribe of Judah, how they would have felt if they were friends of David, knowing what was being done to him? knowing the suffering that he was undergoing, the things that were happening to him. They were dark and difficult days, so in many respects they shared the sufferings of David, as today we strive to share the sufferings of Christ. You know, in Philippians chapter 3, we have a very wonderful comment um, in regard to Paul's spirit regarding the sufferings of Christ. And really, it's very relevant to ourselves as we have always recognised Paul as a great example of faith and faithfulness in Philippians chapter 3 and at verse 10 where it says Paul says here what, what his position is in regard to the Lord Jesus Christ he says look this is all I want to do during this time the Lord is not here the Lord is in heaven at the right hand of his Father but what am I going to do? he says in verse 10 this is all I want that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. They're very wonderful words. And they're really where we are at this present time. So David's friends who had suffered with him and borne his sufferings were now rewarded. And in that sense, they typify the suffering yet loyal saints and they were well aware, as we know, we've seen from chapter 25, back in chapter 24, it was known that David was to be the next king. It was no secret that the time we come to chapter 24, it's, it's, it's known that he will be the next king, chapter 25. Jonathan knew that he would be the next king, and others knew as well. And so you see, men had remained true to Israel's future king. Isn't that a beautiful time? Because that's where we are exactly. The Lord Jesus Christ is not king at this time. He sits at the right hand of his Father. He will be king when he sits upon the restored throne of David. So what are we doing today? We are striving to remain true and faithful and loyal to Israel's future king. And that's what his faithful friends among the elders of Judah look forward to. 
as the saints have remained loyal to Christ down to the ages. The true saints. They are fully committed to that objective. And so verse 27 goes on to tell us where he sent these things. To them which were in Bethel. The, we know that the well-known Bethel was in the area of Ephraim. But this is probably a different Bethel altogether. It's probably the Bethel of Joshua 19 and verse 4. Actually, all these places are interesting to, uh, to, uh, to look up as to where they were. They were all in the southern region and they were all in the area of, uh, of the tribe, the area, the tribal cantonment of Judah. There's places mentioned there, South Ramoth, Jatur, Aroah, uh, the Jeremelites are mentioned, mentioned in verse 29, which is particularly interesting, because they were descendants of Hezron, who was the firstborn of Phares, the son of Judah. And so therefore they were a very great, and therefore a very influential family in Judah. And then it mentions the cities of the Kenites, and it mentions Hormah. But then when you get down to the last verse, verse 31, and to them which were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were wont to haunt. See, he had had friends everywhere, but it hasn't been a lot of made very apparent to us in the earlier chapters, has it? But how significant that the very last place to be mentioned in this narrative is none other than Hebron. You see, significantly it's mentioned last. David probably didn't know it at the time, but Hebron was shortly to become the capital from which David would reign as king over Judah. How remarkable the ways of providence are. In fact, in the second of Samuel, at chapter 2 and verse 1, we read these words. And it came to pass after this, that David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And Yahweh said unto him, Go up. Now, before we read any further, here is something typical of David and his total reliance upon Yahweh. Now, if we were in that position, most of us, I know speaking for myself, if I'd been in that position and I'd said to Yahweh, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And Yahweh had simply answered me and said, Go up. I would have simply gone. I would have taken that as an answer. But David wanted closer direction. David said, Whither shall I go up? You know, it reminds us of that remarkable incident in his life when the Philistines came and assembled themselves in the valley of Rephaim, outside Jerusalem. It's one of my very favourite incidents in the life of David. It's one that I think of often. I regard it as a great incident. I regard it as one of the greatest examples of David's faith. His childlike faith. Not just his faith, his childlike faith. When it was reported to David, the Philistines have assembled in the valley of Rephaim, shall we go out against them? David says, I'll find out, I'll inquire of Yahweh. And he inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh said, go out against them and I'll deliver them into thy hand. He did. He won the that was what was so important about that. And so Hebron became so significant. And needless to say, many of those who remained loyal to David during the period of his persecution at the hands of Saul had come from the very towns and cities 
that are mentioned here in this uh, 30th chapter in verse 27, 28, 29, 30 and 31. Many of those men have come from those very places. As you will see, if you make a note and compare the first of Chronicles chapter 11 and verses 26 right through to verse 47, you'll find all of those places are mentioned. Astonishing. You see again the lesson of David, which is a type of Christ. He did not forget his friends. He did not fail his friends. He honoured them. He cared for them. And he rewarded them with a warm and a compassionate and a loving justice in appreciation for their care and consideration for him during his long period of eclipse within the nation. And those brethren had remained his friends. And you know, it was a part of David's character that he cherished warm and intimate friendships with those in the truth. We find that often in his life. He cherished that. And it was very, very important to him to have that relationship with his friends. And he shows that here in a very real way. So David was to reign from Hebron for seven years until the death of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who was Saul's heir to the throne after the death of Saul and his three other sons. Um, and so therefore, here we have this remarkable chapter ending upon the note that it does. We have this situation where, from the very deep despair of verses 1 to 6 in this chapter, this remarkable change has now come over David's affairs. Remarkable because of the ways of providence and the hand of providence. And so therefore all the affliction that had been manifested in David's life, the suffering, the persecution, the affliction, had brought forth the fruits of righteousness. And it was because, as we read in verse 6, David had encouraged himself in Yahweh his God. And we saw that that word encouraged is a word which means to tie fast, to bind strongly as with bonds, as the sacrifice was bound upon the altar. And he had been exhorted by the very circumstances of his own predicament and a realisation of his total dependence upon Yahweh. And so here then is the tremendous example of the fact that Yahweh permits deep trial to come upon us, that he might prove our faith and cause us to draw nearer unto him. So then with those thoughts in mind, we then go on to chapter 31, where the scene now changes. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. We'll just briefly remind you of... Uh, oh, that's handy. <laughs> There's a power strike, uh, everybody. We'll go and have a bit of warmth for a moment so that we can... Uh, power strike's over. Petrol strike, which you've got to worry about now. Uh, what is it? The Transport Workers Union. Now don't worry, they'll, they'll all go one day, the whole lot of them. They'll all go. So here we are here, here's Mount Gilboa. And just briefly, as pointing out the picture of what we've got, here's Mount Tabor up here in the north, there's Endor, just a little south of Endor is Aphek where the uh, Philistines assembled. Here's Mount Gilboa, 
where uh, uh, Saul's army was. David, of course, at this time is way, way down here. Over here, around about here, is the Mount of uh, um, um, Megiddo, Mount of Megiddo. I was going to say Armageddon, but the Mount, the Mount of Megiddo is over here. Uh, and all of this here, of course, is the Valley of Jezreel, right through here. And it's really an incredible, perhaps over here they can't hear me from the back wall, but it's an incredible thing, you know, something I will never forget, one of my most vivid memories in Israel, is standing on the Mount of Megiddo here and looking right out across the Valley of Jezreel. It's an incredible thing. You're able to look right up to the north to Mount Tabor, which rises majestically out of the plain. Uh, further over, a little bit slightly to the west, is Mount Carmel right up there. Across, right over to the east, is Tiberias. And here's Mount Gilboa and so forth, the Valley of Jezreel. And you can look, you can just live all of these incidents in Scripture again. They all come alive in your mind once you go there, once you see it. So here's where they are. And verse 1 begins with these words, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. So this was, we thought, as we've mentioned previously, probably the day following Saul's visit to the witch of Endor. And it says that the men of Israel fled. You know, this chapter, this 31st chapter of 1st of Samuel, as we hope to see by the time we get to the end of it, is one of the most tragic chapters in Israel's history. A chapter of events that should never have happened. And as we saw from our introductory talk tonight, uh, uh, from Brother Philip and his comments upon a, you know, a wasted life, a life lost in the truth. If only Saul, with all the countless opportunities that Yahweh had given him, had come to his senses and thrown himself upon the mercy of Yahweh, flung himself on the earth and, and confessed his need for divine help and guidance, this chapter would never be in the Bible, it would never have been written. There would have been victory for Israel over the Philistines in every sense of the term. But here we are, as soon as the army of the Philistines, just imagine them charging south down this plain, of, uh, down the valley of Jezreel, charging down, screaming and shouting, waving their swords and their spears. And before they even really get to Mount Gilboa, Saul's army has turned and fled. They were demoralised. They had no real heart for the battle because they hadn't been taught faith and trust and confidence in Yahweh. They had no faith, trust or confidence in their leader, in their king. Remember that we saw some classes ago, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 to 4, which was supposed to take place before Israel went to battle. Instead of having a strategy of generals to plan a campaign, they were to get the priests together, and the priests were to exhort the nation and to pray to Yahweh. And the law allowed in Deuteronomy 20 verses 1 to 4 that under the guidance of the priests Yahweh would bless them and go out to fight for them. But that couldn't be carried out now to encourage and exhort the men because Saul had murdered all the priests save only one and he was with David. How Saul reaped the folly of his ways. And so the men that didn't flee and escape it says that they fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the language of that verse is that not only of a defeat, but a complete rout. And the army of Saul is thrown into utter confusion. Because barely, some of them barely make their escape. And you see, when there are doubts and fears, 
when in the body there will be an absence of oneness and unity of mind among Yahweh's people. That must not be. Just for a moment, just glance briefly with me at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, a verse that we know so well, but so wonderfully applicable to, uh, to the situation that we've got here in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, in verse 13, in words that we know so well, the Apostle says, as the Ecclesia is girding here, at Ephesus, the Ephesian Ecclesia, they're girding for their warfare for survival against the evil environment of Ephesus. They were at war with the world, as Saul was at war with the Philistines, and what is Paul telling in verse 13? Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. But it is only the army of Yahweh that will do that, and that will give us that strength, and, and help to dissipate any doubts and fears, and unify the body in, in facing the, the, the problems and the trials and the battles of life. You see, Saul had caused the nation to become terribly divided. And what a tremendous responsibility leaders or shepherds within the ecclesia do have in regard to matters of this nature. We know very well that whilst refusing to compromise the truth, they have at the same time, their main objective is, is the building up of the body, the building up by the sound, thorough, solemn and reliable exposition of the Word of God, the unifying of the body under the guidance of the Word and under the guiding hand of Yahweh. And in all those respects, Saul had failed. He had failed utterly. And that's why we have this disaster before us in chapter 31 and verse 1. And so verse 2 says that the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and his sons. Which means simply that charging across the valley of Jezreel with every degree of arrogance and confidence in themselves, the Philistines very quickly slammed their way up the Mount Gilboa, up that hill, putting the Israelites to flight and slaying all in their paths who couldn't get out of their way. And once they were aware of the fact that victory was theirs, their next objective was to destroy Saul and his sons. That was their objective. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchizedek. And you know what we should observe from that first of all? Saul saw that. They were killed before he died. He saw, he saw Jonathan cut down and butchered. He saw Abinadab cut down and butchered. He saw the other son, Melchizedek, cut down and butchered. And he in large measure was responsible. And though he watched in cold horror the slaughter of his sons, he knew full well, or he should have known, that it was a tragedy that should never have occurred. And you know the names of those three sons and their meanings now spelled out a fearful message of failure to Saul because the name Jonathan signifies the grace or gift of Yahweh and the name Abinadab means father of liberality and the name Melchizedek 
means king of help. And so these three men, one by one as they're cut down, are showing Saul this. God had provided Saul with the grace or gift of Yahweh by offering him the truth. And as such, Yahweh had been the father of liberality. He had been totally liberal in his generosity towards Saul. In that he often saw the truth liberally and not sparingly. And therefore, Yahweh could have been king of help to Saul and to all of Israel at that time. But all of those good things Saul had spurned. And so in verse 3 it goes on to tell us that the battle went sore against Saul and the archers hit him and he was sore wounded of the archers. Verse 3 literally should be rendered the archers found him or discovered him which meant that they were looking everywhere and they'd been told that by their Philistine rulers. Find Saul and his sons, get him. He's number one target and his sons with him. And so it says that he was sore wounded of the archers. In Deuteronomy chapter 2 and at verse 25, the verb of this word has been rendered as to be in anguish. And because of that, Rotherham has rendered this, he was terrified at the archers. He was not near death at this particular time. But he was wounded. He was deeply wounded. And he knew now that his position was absolutely hopeless. That is why in verse 4, the last verse that we read tonight, thus said, then said Saul unto his armour bearer, draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armour bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. The armour bearer is not named. We don't know who he was. But do you know that Jewish tradition has it that the armour bearer was none other than doing the Edomite. Now whether that was true or not, we do not know. and We won't know until the Lord returns. We can discuss, hopefully, with Yahweh's blessing, matters such as this with David and others who were there. But Jewish tradition has it that the armour bearer was doing, that he had remained close to Saul. But you see, when the armour bearer would not, then t- Saul took the sword. Notice at the end of verse 4, it's quite a long verse, isn't it? The last sentence. Therefore, it says, Saul took a sword and fell upon it. But in the Hebrew, it is Saul took the sword. Now, the sword that is under discussion and which is the subject of verse 4 is the sword of the armour bearer. At this point, Saul had probably lost his own sword. This is the sword of the armour bearer. So Saul, having killed himself, the armour bearer then took his sword and likewise took his own life. Now here is an interesting point and certainly we fully acknowledge this is a speculative thought which we don't usually put forward at all. But 
Just something to think about. If it is so, if the tradition be true, what it means is that both Saul and Doeg lost their lives with the same sword that had been used to slaughter the priest of Yahweh back in chapter 22. And if that is so, what an incredible thing and what divine justice. And Yahweh was revenged, avenged for the death of his priests, the murder of his priests. And so Saul, it says in verse 4, took a sword and fell upon it. And here we leave with this thought tonight. There are only five cases of suicide recorded in Scripture. There is Ahithophel in the second of Samuel 17. We know how he finished up. We know what he was before. But we know how he betrayed David and betrayed the truth and betrayed his God. Let us never forget that. The next one mentioned is Zimri in the first of Kings 16. And when we read about him, we read that he was a murdering drunkard, a dreadful man. The third is Saul, who is mentioned here in this verse. The fourth is Saul's armour bearer, here in verse 5. Was it Doeg? We don't know. But in all probability, considering the characters of all the others mentioned, he certainly was not a very godly man, whoever he may have been. And the fifth is Judas Iscariot in Matthew 27. What examples they are to avoid. And how David stands out in contrast to all of that and to the tragedy of all of that. And shortly out of all of this, and as tragic as this chapter is, and we will see God willing more of that tragedy at our very final class on the 1st of Samuel 31. Despite all that tragedy, David had encouraged himself in Yahweh his God. And his mind was set on the truth and his mind was stayed on the truth. And so we look finally for the word of David in Psalm 42. Just a closing thought. The mind of David in regard to these matters. Psalm 42 and verse 5 and then verse 11 where we have David from his experiences of life uttering these heartfelt words which all of us, every one of us should echo day by day in our lives. Verse 5 of Psalm 42 and then verse 11 Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the help of my countenance and my God.